direction. I, I think nobody could hit the mark any uh, better than that. We have learned to fill auditoriums. We have learned to draw giant crowds by preaching a gospel that is essentially selfish. This morning, I want to talk to you about seven days of praise. I want to talk to you about praise in the midst of those difficult circumstances. When you know that God is God and that he's not just a genie in the sky there to give you your Santa Claus-like wish list, is when things do not go the way that you wanted them to go, and yet you praise Him because you acknowledge His ways are higher than yours. His are better than yours. Nobody out there should be sitting down going, Oh man, I hope that my dreams are crushed. I hope that I have a difficult time. Nobody wants these things. But when we endure them and consider them light and momentary troubles for the sake of the gospel, it glorifies God. It shows how big He is. The overwhelming testimony of historians in the first and second century about the followers of Jesus was that they loved not their lives so much to shrink back from death. That was the overwhelming testimony. How do you know that what Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote are true? They gave their lives for it. What bigger testimony could they have about the truth? How do we know about the sincerity of the resurrection? People that were touched by it, that witnessed it, those who were present during those days gave their life testifying about it and did so praising God. Has anybody in here ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Raise your hand if you have. There's a time when you could ask that question in any church anywhere and every hand would go up, but it's not popular anymore. In fact, I bought my last copy for $1.39 because nobody cares. It's not what is popularly preached and taught. But it chronicles, brothers and sisters, from the crucifixion forward, that love not their lives so much as to shrink back from death. And they sang hymns and praised the living God while flames engulfed them. You say, that's gory. I don't want to read about it. No, it's glorious. The day of the Lord is gory to some and glorious to others. Have you never read the prophets? The prophets describe it as dreadful and Peter calls it glorious. It depends on your perspective. Friends, I want whatever has to be worked in me, whatever has to be worked out of me, whatever I have to go through that I might achieve God's goal and aim for my life. Is that your heart? If that's your heart, then the King of Kings will lovingly guide you through the most difficult of training courses. Because He's not calling you to be ordinary. Amen. He's not calling you to be uh, just on par with everyone else. He is calling you to something that is extraordinary. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. Oh, y'all are already there. Very good. Y'all are fast. Or you got some help before the video. Huh? Here comes 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists. And that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. You could read this, and many do. Simply as acknowledging God exists, and that is faith. I believe that the circumstances surrounding this letter and the context in the chapter point to something altogether different than that kind of acknowledgement. I believe that the circumstances point to people who are in an unfathomable situation. Their nation has been promised that they would rule and reign the other nations with God for an eternity. They have been promised that Jerusalem would be raised up to be the highest mountain in the land. And the nations would stream to it and the law of God would go out from it. And instead what they see is crushing Roman occupation. 
The Romans are about to come in and pull every stone down from the temple, which is the very symbol of the place God's name dwells. Could there be any harder situation to look at and go, yeah, I can see God at work in this. Now, to the Christian theologian 2,000 years later, we say, oh yes, this is because they rejected Jesus. And we find all kinds of ways to excuse what was real human misery, real suffering. You know, when the siege master Titus showed up outside Jerusalem in 66 AD, he didn't send him a thank you note. He didn't, he didn't say, you know, if you would like, I'm going to come in and tear these things down. People were raped. They were murdered. People were killed in wholesale fashion. And those who survived were enslaved. Real people. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. In that situation... In the midst of your whole world gone awry, gone astray, can you believe that God exists in it and that He will reward you for seeking Him? Amen. That's what faith is. That's what trust is. Now, you'll hear 60 preachers on television today with silver suits and 70 mile an hour haircuts and silver tongues tell you faith is simply naming something, claiming it. Faith might be sending them $100 so God can send you $700. It's funny, it never goes the reverse way, though, huh? They're never offering to send Tony $100 so God can send him $700, huh? They're never, it never goes the opposite way. It's not faith. It's parlor tricks. Faith is in the midst of the most difficult things that the world has to throw your way. You see God's hand in it, and you trust in Him. And the words of one little Baptist lady that Matthew and I grew up around... You look it in the face and you say, nevertheless, God. Amen. Yeah? Miss Suzanne has got an unconquerable faith at times. It doesn't matter what the situation is. She'd look at you and just go, I'm going to pray about that. Which means you can consider this situation solved. It's just a matter of time. Right? That's right. Even parking spaces. It's always, we should have had her the other day in New Bronzeville's, huh? No matter what we face, friends, real faith, it's when we trust that God is at work on our behalf in the midst of it. Now, I don't have to ask, are there people out here that have been in situations that it's hard to do that? You know, I've done a lot of funerals for children. It's hard to believe God's at work in that at times. I've seen situations where spouses have lost each other after 50 years. You know, I, I, I held a man's hand who was holding his wife's hand, his wife of 52 years died. He, he didn't know where to go, what to do. He hadn't eaten breakfast alone in 52 years. Mm. Is it hard sometimes to acknowledge that God exists? Yeah, you have to have His witness born in your heart. It's not accepting a doctrine. There has to be a moment in time where things changed for you, where a nature began to be renewed, when your thoughts were no longer just your thoughts, but God began to interject His revelation into your life, and it became a rock that His church would be built on. And it's been growing and building in you so that no matter what you face, you can look at those mile markers and go, God was with me then and He delivered me. And he will be with me there. I killed that giant and I will kill the next one too. Because he's already delivered me from the, the paw of the lion and the bear. This is the life of a Christian. Now if you follow popular ministries, what you're going to hear the life of a Christian is, is one that is blessed where every day is Friday. Everything is, it's, it's Disneyland all of the time. We even build our churches like that. 
it looks more like six flags than like a church. And you say, well, Eric, how could you be so harsh? Because it's leading people to place their trust in what is little more than polished idols. Amen. We do not serve God because He gives us Cadillacs. Amen. We do not serve God because He met a financial need. I serve Him because He is righteous and I was wicked and He has changed my nature and He's teaching me to be like Him. I serve Him because He has the very words of life. And if He meets a need, praise God. If He doesn't, then I need to redefine what needs are, don't I? Yeah, I've been to some countries lately that will teach you to redefine what needs are. I'd like to talk to you about Genesis 29. Please turn there. When you go to Genesis from Hebrews, you have to pass over the book of Exodus, yes? Why don't you stop in Exodus 24, then we will go to Genesis 29. You know what it is to have a Sunday and Wednesday commitment? Or what it is to have a commitment that is, I don't know, three times a year, Christmas, maybe Mother's Day, Easter? You know, there's all kind of levels of commitment to Jesus. I have found one level of commitment is that we will have a moment of silence in a group. That's one level of commitment. I don't know if it measures on the scale, but it's there. Another might be to say, you know, in His name we pray. Another might be to say, oh, let's pray to my friend, the living God who saved me. That's what, His name is Jesus. Jesus magnifies the Father. Come join with me. I know we're in Burger King, but it doesn't matter. Let's praise Him, right? Those kids over there are talking about what they did Friday night, and they're glorifying their demonic God. Let's, let's glorify Jesus right here. There are all kinds of level of commitment. I'm convinced that America is dating Jesus. They show up in their finest clothes on Sunday. Maybe not here. <laughs> they show up in their finest clothes on Sunday, a few of them on Wednesday. They say nice things to each other, spend an hour together, and then they go back to their regular life. Does anybody remember the transition from dating your spouse to marrying them? Because when I dated Jennifer, you know, I opened every door. Um, every time I saw her, it was like, it's Jennifer. When we got married, she found out I did things like left my underwear on the floor, <laughs> forgot to pick up my towel, or maybe didn't forget, just was too terribly lazy to actually do it. And I knew if I stayed there long enough and whined loud enough, she could do it, right? She found all kind of unsavory things about me. When you spend every day and every night, intimacy grows. And it grows because familiarity grows. You begin to know what someone is like. Are you in Exodus 24? Yes. Yeah. Look at verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. How odd that that is found in Exodus 24, verse 7. It's almost as if 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, God requires you to obey everything He has said. That He will not put up with weekend commitments. He will not acknowledge you as a bride if in truth you have only acted like a dating partner. If you only showed up on awards day, but never went through a two-a-days and the rest of the season, you might not be on the team, friends. The gospel is a narrow gospel. It is a narrow way. 
I have found through the years that one of the easiest ways, doctrinal disputes aside, because if you put two Christians in a room, you come up with three opinions. That's just the way that it works. Doctrinal disputes aside, one of the easiest ways to find the genuine presence of a saving faith is let tragedy in. And when tragedy or persecution hits, those who are still able to smile have something born of heaven in them, and those who are not do not. It is a litmus test. Turn with me to Genesis 29. You guys are faster than me. In Genesis 29, we find the first use of a word that is printed in your bulletin called yada. It's funny, in modern Hebrew, yada has come down as something. Have you ever been talking to somebody and they said, JJ, I went to Witch Witch the other day and I ordered a sandwich and yada yada. I went on after that and... It, it means in Hebrew, in modern Hebrew, I know, I know. It's, it's hurry up, uh, we're, we're just going to skip that part because I already know it. That is not what it means in biblical Hebrew. It's not what it means in the context of Genesis 29. In Genesis 29, starting in verse 35, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise Yahweh. She named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. The people of God for centuries were identified as those who lived in Judah, those who were Jews, those, those who were in the area of the Roman province, Judea. They began being called Jews, which you've been taught is praise of God. And that is correct. But we're going to find out it's so much more than that. Everywhere you go, people will say things like, praise God. But praising God in this sense has a physical and a spiritual component to it. It can be seen as well as felt. In the Bible, when the word praise is used, and King James almost exclusively uses praise, even though there's seven words that are behind it. NIV often translates uh, praise as extol, uh, Praise is thanksgiving, praise in several different ways. All of them inadequate. I wish we could learn Hebrew, uh, every one of us. If we did, you would find a, a beautiful, rich depth of understanding. Having said that, we can point to some things today that I think will give you every day of the week a new way and a new reason to praise the Lord. Would that be worth it? Amen. When we look at the people of God, those who were called Jews, it comes from the word yada. It's a verb and it has a meaning. The verb means to extend the hand, to throw out the hand. It is used metaphorically in worship, to worship with extended hand. One lexicon said that the exact opposite of yada would be to wring your hands in a bemoaning fashion. Understand that with Cain and Abel, with all mankind, there are two basic responses to the presence of God. The same way that a child has two basic responses. This one's too young, but he's mine. Get on your knees. If he does not want anything to do with me, he'll cover his hands and look at the ground and wring them. If he wants me, raise your hands. Daddy, pick me up. The people of God would be called... Uh, Jews from Judah, it's derived from the word yada, those who extended their hands towards God. That became so synonymous with praise that today about half the lexicon simply say praise. But first, 
In primary, it's a root word that means to extend your hands. Let's look at some ways that it's used. By the way, Judah and Yada appear in the same scripture in Genesis 29.35, also in Genesis 49.8, so that the two terms were a play on each other. When, when she named her son Judah, she's naming him somebody who would extend his hands towards God, who would praise God. So that the two words forever in Israeli history would be linked. Yada and Judah. There's one vowel difference, but of course Hebrew has no vowels. <laughs> right? We put those there to help us uh, sound it out. Look at 2 Chronicles 20 and get to verse 21. Tell me when you're there. there. Are y'all sleepy? What's wrong no, with this morning? Mario, are you mad at me? <laughs> I can't think of a single reason you would be, Mario. You're a shining success in the kingdom. I love you and I'm proud of you. Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles 20, 21. You all there? there? Give thanks to the Lord. His love endures forever. Look at this, this wording. Give thanks. This is in Hebrew. Give yada to the Lord. His love endures forever. It is an action. It speaks of offering him something. Have you ever been in a praise service like this? What is it that we're giving him? What we would give, maybe what we would give a police officer? I mean, I, I'm going to tell the truth as a kid. I grew up in a setting where it was simply unmanly. It was considered not masculine to give God something during worship. So we stood stoically. By the way, Stoic is uh, not a good thing. The Stoic, Stoic and Epicurean philosophers fought with the apostles, and we imitate them. But we stood in church. We did not sing. That was the ladies' job. They sang. But the men in the family, we stood. This was our service to God. We called it reverence. You say, well, people worship in different ways. This is true, but everybody must bring something. You're uncomfortable raising your hands. I... It's not a charismatic thing to me. It's a Bible thing. Raising hands looks different for some people, right, Cass? <laughs> it almost got me thrown out of the church that I grew up in. Why? Because they simply decided that people don't worship like that if they're going to be a part of this grouping. What gives a man the right to decide that? What gives anybody the right to decide that? If it's listed in the scripture, and listed in the scripture 114 times, 114 times the word Yada is used to praise the Lord. What gives anybody the right to do that? I refuse to let this be a Pentecostal or charismatic issue. It's a Christian issue. By the way, in 1 Timothy 2.8, what did Paul say? I know all of you are like scripture lexicons, so you're wrong with it. He said, I want men everywhere to raise their hands in prayer without wrath or malice. I want men everywhere, not men of one denomination or another denomination. Is this not the international sign of surrender? Yeah. yeah, I was just at a border where we weren't sure what they were going to do. We either put our hands in our pockets to show that we were meek and not aggressive, or out and open so that they could see them. It depends on which way the guns are pointing as to where you put your hands. That's right. Yeah. This is a way of saying, Lord, I have something to offer you. You gave these hands to me. And they're going to work for you now. 
That's not a denominational issue, friends. It's a scriptural issue. Do you know that the Jews for centuries have raised their hands in prayer? When you write the word Hillel, which we'll get to later, it's with a man with lifted hands. How could we let the devil come in and steal this from us? Yeah. Am I the only one, though, that in a worship service often would rather just kind of sit in the back and not be noticed? I, I feel that way sometimes. Am I the only one? Okay, two of you sometimes sympathize with that feeling. If only two of you have ever felt that way, why do we have such flat worship services sometimes? I suspect that all human beings sometimes feel this way. I would go so far as to say that in our nature, we don't like to be told what to do. Not even if it's by God. We don't like to be told what to do. There may even be something in you that says, oh, we're in one of those places that raises their hands, I'll sit on mine in defiance. Even if you see it written in the scripture. You know how I know that? All of those thoughts have existed in me. Every one of them. I went to the Wesleyan Methodist Church when I was a boy. It was a good experience in my life. I went with uh, Fred and Suzanne and their family. And I looked and those people all sang. I found that strange. Even the guys sang, right? And better than that, Matthew, they harmonized. I thought that was, I'd never seen a family that I, to me, a family that sang together was a TV program. You know, that's, that's what that was. And um, I found out that people everywhere have something to offer God. Yeah. Do you want to bring him something to church or do you only want to receive something? See, that's a fundamental question for us, isn't it? Do we want to give God something or do we solely want to receive from God something? How many of you agreed with John Piper in that video? I mean, how many of you are not real happy with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel? See, I'm not either. But the fundamental question is not, does God want you to have a Cadillac? That is not it. That's a, that's a, a side distraction. The fundamental question is, do you come to Him to receive from Him or to give to Him? Amen. See, I came to give Him something, my life. I've already received from Him everything that I could ever have needed. He saved me. He filled me with His power. He gave me a brand new life. How could I sit and ask for more? Does not the scripture say, Seek first the kingdom and what will be added to you? Everything. But if you seek everything, will the kingdom be added to you? It doesn't work that way, does it? When we move through, you don't have to turn to this. We get to Psalm 107, 15. It says, let them give thanks. Let them give yada to the Lord for his unfailing love and wonderful deeds for men. We can see that yada has a physical component as well as a spiritual. There has to be something inside you that wants to be pleasing to him. And then there is an appropriate physical response. How many of you, when you get excited, clap your hands, Joel? Huh? You get excited, clap your hands. I've seen some of you get really excited. One of my favorite things that one of my in-laws does, if he gets seriously excited and in a way that is uncharacteristic for the rest of his life to me, he's got this little hip thing he does. Right? I, I think it's great when people are truly excited about the Lord. It shows up somewhere, doesn't it? You walk into a room of kindergartners, get them excited, and tell me you won't be able to see it. Oh, yeah. Why do you think Jesus was so fond of the children? Why do you think that the Bible tells us to emulate their faith? Maybe as we get older, wiser, prouder, 
prouder, isn't that a nice way to say full of pride? We decide that we're not going to do certain things. I hope when I'm 98 years old, I can still dance like a little kid in the presence of the Lord. Amen. Matthew said, that's easy for me to say, nobody expects me to make my <laughs> Come on now. A people who raise their hands to the Lord, i.e. praise Him, is how God chose to have His people called. When you say, Jesus is the King of the Jews, it's a derivative of Yada. He's a King of the people that have something to offer with their own hands to God. Was not the temple worship defined by people who were bringing something to God in recognition of their own sin and failure in their life? Lord, we couldn't do this without you. We want to show you that we honor and reverence you as the monarch of our life, the king, the Malakolam king of the world. We are bringing you something like tribute to a king. We're not trying to buy favor. We're trying to show appreciation or praise. Man, what would our life look like if we took one day a week to do nothing other than in a physical way show God that He is the monarch of our life? Come on, not an inward quiet thought that no one can see. Not something that happened in your prayer closet alone. In a physical, demonstrable way show God that you praised Him. Would that be worth doing? Yes. He gave us seven terms. I wonder if each day of the week we might think of one of them. Turn with me then to Leviticus 7. The second term is Todah. I, th I find it hilarious that there's a biblical Hebrew and then a modern Hebrew that is, uh, it's based on the biblical, but it's developed some slang. Uh, if, if Zeke gives me a glass of milk, if we're sitting at the table in Jerusalem and uh, he gives me a, a glass of milk, my response to him would be todah. If he says, do you want milk, it'd be kin. Or, or if Matthew doesn't want it, it'd be low. But my response to Zeke, if he gives it to me, would be todah. That is, thank you. It's a way of uh, saying exactly that. Thank you. But the biblical one never has two men saying thank you to each other. Todah is never used in the Bible between two men saying thank you. And the lexicons point out that there's a reason for that. Are you in the 7th chapter of Leviticus? Yes. Uh, starting in verse 11. These are the regulations for fellowship offering. A person may present to the Lord. If he offers it as an expression of thankfulness, then along with the thank offering, he is to offer cakes of bread made without yeast and mixed with oil and wafers. And he goes on to describe that. There were five offerings that could be offered in Leviticus. They show up in the first five chapters, and in the seventh chapter you get more regulations on one of them. But this offering, this fellowship offering, is called shilem in Hebrew. It's where you get the word salem, or you get the word shalom. It's, it means peace. It's a peace offering. If you are at the temple bringing something to God in the hopes of obtaining peace, what did you not have before you got there? Peace. If I had to ask Zeke, would you please hand me the milk? And he did, and the response to that was todah. It's an acknowledgement that Zeke did something for me that is worth me talking about. He did something, something was transferred from Zeke to me that I appreciate. In Leviticus 7, the 12th verse, when he says an expression of thankfulness, or King James says a thank offering, what he's saying is, 
You can come to the temple. You can bring meat. You can bring uh, grain. You can bring oil. Do it in these proportions. And the meal needs to be eaten there. Because what the people are saying is, Lord, I needed peace with you. And you've now given it to me. We're reconciled. And I wanted to praise you for that. It's more than just an expression with your hands, of upraised hands. It's an attitude of the heart that says, I have received something from you. And I want to respond to it. Todah is not just thankfulness. It's an acknowledgement that you don't have. And that he gave. And that now you have and you are thankful for it. Some people translate Todah confession. And the reason they translated confession is, of course, because it can mean confession. But I want you to think about the way in which Todah is a confession in a peace offering. If you were there to make a peace offering, if I have to show up at Nolan's house, and I said, Nolan, things haven't gone right. Would you accept this watch as a gift, as a, as a peace offering? It's a way of me saying, Nolan, for whatever reason, probably my fault, things are not working well between us. And I want them to work well between us. And if Nolan accepts it, then it is an offering of thankfulness. It's a way of me responding to him. One of the times that the Bible says praise in the King James, in the NIV, it often says thank offering or thankfulness or thanksgiving, bring to you thanksgiving, is a todah. It's a way of saying, Lord, I didn't have anything good and you did for me what I couldn't do. Now, the first time it shows up is at a meal. A meal, the fellowship offering. Did Jesus not say in the book of Revelation that he would come in and dine with you and you with him? It in, indicates a willingness to reconcile, a willingness to bring peace if you would just respond to the message rightly. By the way, in the Gospels, other than healing, what did Jesus do the most of? He's eating at somebody's house every day. It was a way for God to tell man, I want to be reconciled with you. And there's a response that's required from you. Your whole life needs to say todah. By the way, todah also means to stretch out. In fact, if you're writing definitions, you could define todah like this. Todah is closely related to yada, and it also involves an extension of the hand, but relates to confession, thanks, and praise. Its first occurrence in Leviticus 7 helps us understand that. Here's another one. It comes from Joshua 7.19, if you want to turn there. There. The reason that I reject the idea that todah simply means thank you is in the Bible. When people are thankful to each other, they don't use that word. When they're thankful because they've received something from God, todah is only given to God. It's never directed towards anybody else. It's kind of a satanic thing then that today is directed towards anybody, isn't it? Yeah, he does that. Uh, 7.19, Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Todah. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. There is something that praises God in your acknowledgement that you have to fess up. Because he knows anyway. And he wants to hear it from you. What's about to happen to Achan? He's about to die. How can Achan give glory to God? Because his last living act is acknowledging, you are God, I was wrong, and I am thankful for whatever comes from you next. Mm. 
you know the only other time that phrase appears in the Bible, give glory to God, like that, in that, is the high priest charging Paul. The high priest said it to Paul. He was trying to invoke upon him the strongest, uh, most compelling thing that he could say to him. You can read about it in Acts, because Paul had called him a whitewashed wall. Right? Your life should respond in some way to the Lord. A life of thankfulness. It's something that ought to rise up out of you. How could you do that? Who's made in his image? Jacob, who's made in the Lord's image? We are. This means that if you find people who have needs because the Lord met your need and you go and meet their needs, it's an act of praise. What do we call those? We call them acts of service, usually. The Bible refers to it as an act of praise. Why is it praise? Because if God had not done something in Jacob's life, he never would have cared about the person he went to hell. This is different than social justice. It's different than humanitarian issues. Why do you do the things that you do? It should be in response to what God has already done for you. Is there nobody in here that God's done something for? Yeah. Come on, did God do something for you, Rick? Yeah. I heard your testimony. He did something for you, didn't he? Has your life been lived differently since he did something for you? Because it requires a response. You know, the atheist who sticks his head in the sand and says, God never did anything for me, had to take a breath to make that statement. Yeah. When he walks outside and says, today is July 22nd, he's testifying to the fact that God's Son so changed the world as we know it that we number our years based on his appearance on the scene. A life ought to have a response to the gospel. This is a todah. Y'all want to move on? Are you sleepy? No. In Ezra 10, I'll tell you this one. Don't go there. Now make confession, todah, to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. When Ezra was reconstituting Israel, one of the first things he said is bring God praise. And the way you're going to bring him praise is you're going to start with acknowledging the ways you failed him. So that he can give you forgiveness and you can respond to that. This in the Bible is called praise. It's, called, it's one of the words that means praise. It's todah. has to do with confessing. That's how he reconstituted Israel. Did, is there anybody in here that was taught to quote Romans 10, 9, and 10? Yeah. Look at this. Jacob, give us Romans 10, 9, and 10. You confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Yes, raised from the dead, you will be saved. Listen to this. If you confess, it's almost as if the man who was writing this had some knowledge of the Jewish nation. Because the response to God doing something for you would come out of your mouth in a confession that was really praise. When we give a testimony, why do you tell people sometimes where you've come from? If, if we get Cody's testimony, and maybe he doesn't describe himself as a saint before meeting Jesus, why does he tell us where he's come from? Because there's glory in what God pulled him out of. This is Todah. Todah is to say, Lord, I know exactly who I am without you, and I wanted peace with you, and you gave me peace, so I want to offer you a praise for that. Is there nobody in here who wants to praise the Lord for that? Are we going to praise the Lord like this? No. Are we going to praise the Lord like this? No. How are you going to praise the Lord? Come on, give me a hand clap. 
homeschool teacher. That's scary, I know. I mean, it, it, it terrifies me, right? The, the scariest part about it, Dustin, is that there are times that I, I sit with Gabe and I have to go check the answer because I don't understand the question. And I can derive from the answer how it should have been worked to get it, right? That's a scary thing. But when you are in a traditional class, why do you raise your hand? In a traditional class setting, 30 students, a sage on a stage, mom, you teach every week. Why does someone raise their hand in class? They think they know the answer. Because they know the answer to the question you're asking. Maybe we could start with something as simple as to say, since Toda and Yada both have to do with an acknowledgement and a physical way of who God is, we could just offer God our hands because we know He is the answer to doing something good with them. You want a productive life? Anybody here want to do something for the Lord? Yes. You'll never do it sitting on your salvation. Amen. You better learn to let action accompany your faith. What better way to do that than to start with the first song of praise? Why is it everybody's good with clapping and nobody's good with raising their hands? You know, clapping is not mentioned nearly as many times in the Bible as raising your hands. So why is it? Is it because it's scriptural or unscriptural? No, it's because it makes us uncomfortable. But doesn't something about the gospel make you uncomfortable? Doesn't Todah have to confess that you're uncomfortable outside of him, that he's made you peace? Maybe that's why the devil's resisted it so much. Romans 10 came from the Apostle Paul. He understood at the very heart of Jewish worship was a confession, was an offering, was a response to what God has done. So he could say confidently, if a man will confess this with his mouth, if he'll believe it in his heart, then he'll be saved. I don't think he ever anticipated a day where there would be whole nations of people that had absolutely no understanding of the Jewish background for which he was talking. I don't think he ever could have imagined that there would be people that would be so small-minded as to say, if a man simply verbalizes this, he's saved. That never crossed his mind. Or people that would write books and argue about if a man is lying when he says it, is he saved? So who wrote that book? Well, anytime you want to know, can Jesus be your Savior without being your Lord? You would be lying to say, I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. He's my Lord and confess it with my mouth. He's not your Lord. And these are the things that have preoccupied the church over the last 30 years. Preoccupied the church. Questions of lordship. Questions of real salvation. And usually what we're trying to do is boil it down to the minimum. Is there not a heart out there that says, God's done so much for me, I want to give him the maximum? Yes. I want to give him the maximum. Yes. Steve, do you, do you just want to serve God in the smallest acceptable fashion possible so that when you meet him, you can say, Lord, I gave you my least. No. Come on. Yeah. No. You know, the most uncomfortable thing that I hear regularly in church is, it's okay with me if I'm a doorkeeper as long as I make it into heaven. No, that's not okay with me at all. And I think with that attitude, you're almost surely going to miss the kingdom of God. Amen. I hope something rises in you that says he's done so much for me, it begs a response. You know, when you do something for little kids, are they happy? Yes. They are. In fact, if, if, you, if you take a four-year-old to get ice cream, it makes their day, Right? Uh, it's only when they get into those teenage years that you can do nice things for them and they can look at you with petulance. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. 
Maybe we have a nation of spiritual teenagers. God has done everything for this nation that could possibly be done. And we still have the nerve to look at him and ask for more without saying thank you for what we have. Uh, let's move on from that, huh? Let's go to Shabbat. Shabbat means to address in a loud tone, to glorify, to commend or congratulate. The NIV often translates the word as extol. It is of importance to note that it also has an alternate meaning. Don't you love Hebrew words? They're loaded with meaning. We can say, hey man, this means to applaud loudly. Spence, it means to congratulate. So Spence is like, I got that. That's like fans at a football game. I got it. It, it means to get excited like you ran a Pentecostal service. It means to be loud. Of course, it also, Shabbat, means to soothe or still. In the Psalms, when it says that God soothes or stills the seas. In fact, in Hebrew... If you wanted to say what Jesus did with that storm, he rebuked the storm, it would have become Shabbat, still. Well, which is it? Is it loud praises? Or is it a quiet, quiet stillness? It seems to point to something. When a man engages his mouth, and out of his heart, his mouth speaks, and he begins to announce it to everybody how he feels, it has a calming effect on his own heart. The, the, the people of the Bible meditated on the Word. Now, when we say meditate, we often don't know what that means. You know, to us, meditation is something that happens in the Buddhist temple back there or the Hindu temple over there. Meditation in the Bible was to repeat the Word to yourself over and over, to think on it, like a lion growling over his food, enjoying every little morsel, to speak it. When we Shabbat, we are calling out the praises of God and by announcing it to everyone it does something inside of us it affirms his kingship it stills the storm inside of you one of the most dangerous things in a meeting is the person who sits silently <laughs> you know if you have 10 people at the table and one will not speak the entire meeting you have no idea why he's there what he took away from the meeting or what he hoped to contribute you prefer people to speak because you don't know whether inside there's turmoil or inside there's peace or any of those things. If you are silent in your Christian praise, I don't mean on Sunday and Wednesday. If you are silent in your Christian praise, it's dangerous to the people that are around you. You know why? They have no idea where you stand. But there is something calming, something soothing, something stilling about a man who announces boldly exactly where he stands. Psalm 63.3 says it this way. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify, will shabak you. My lips will glorify you. I am commanding the members of my body, my lips, to bring you praise. Now, if CJ decided to praise God right now, if his lips were going to be used in the service of God right now, would you hear it? What else did God give you a mouth and lips for? I'm acknowledging Him in my heart. I want you to think about these uh, altar calls just for a second. Brother Mike, I'm glad you're with us today. Anybody out there, anybody out there who kind of sort of feels affectionate about Jesus, if you have a warm, fuzzy feeling in the, in, in the pit of your stomach, with every head bowed, with every eye closed, would you please raise a pinky? Where's the Hebrew Shabbat in that? Mm. 
Shabbat would say, stand up, yell it to everyone. Start with your neighbors. Let the world know where you stand. That outside you may have trouble, but inside you would have a stillness of soul. I meet more people that go, oh, you didn't know I was a Christian? No. How would anybody know you were a Christian? I worked with you for 10 years. I don't see you do anything different than the rest of the world. How would I know you're a Christian? Say, well, you didn't notice that I don't drink? You didn't notice that I don't smoke? You didn't... Mormons don't drink and smoke. What, what about that makes someone a Christian? How would you know I was married if I never told you I had a wife that I loved? If I didn't wear symbols of her? If I didn't put her pictures around? How would you know? Well, in my heart, I knew I was married. That's not enough for you? Do you see how silly this has become? I fell in love with him in a way that I wanted the whole world to know, and I didn't want to wait 24 hours for him to know. I finished most of the New Testament that night so that when I got to school the next day, every single person I saw, I told, including my teachers, it actually shut down all seven of our classes. All, all seven which, for which the students were happy. Yeah. How did you come to the Lord? Was it in a quiet, anonymous, inward way? How's your walk been since then? Has it stayed quiet, inward, anonymous? Or is there something of the Spirit of God in you that is just going, Shabbat! That wants the world to know that wants the world to know that you praise Him. Amen. Come on. I would rather one person who would acknowledge friendship with me publicly than 25 who would not but say that they're my best friend. What good is that kind of friendship? Shabbat. Psalm 145 is probably the best place to see this and the role of Shabbat. Yeah, please turn there. You're going to want to hear this. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Verse 4. One generation will commend your works to another. That word commend is Shabbat. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. How do you meditate on God's wonderful works if we're not talking about them? How do you tell of his glories from one generation to the next if we're not talking about them? Well, I went to church. Good. What was the service about? You know how many times somebody tells me they go to church and I say, Hey, who's your pastor? When they stumble with that one, I know what we're dealing with. <laughs> then when they can answer that one, I say, well, tell me, what did y'all learn this last Sunday? I, I, I want to be very honest. Maybe it's because I'm a pastor. Some, some people even say I'm intimidating. I don't understand that, but they do. But about eight out of ten times, when I ask a Christian, even if it's on Monday, what church was about on Sunday, they cannot tell me. What does that say? Our job, friends, is to loudly, to shout from the rooftops the glorious things God has done. This is how the next generation learns to put their trust in Him. 
Psalm 78 says we won't withhold it from our children. We will tell them of what God has done that they might put their trust in Him. Amen. Am I the only one that bemoans the generation that's coming up? Am I the only one that sees intergalactic Xbox heroes as uh, a hollow accomplishment? Uh, endless gaming, uh, no actual achievement, only accolade. Am I the only one that, that is bothered by that? Okay, well, what are you going to do about it? See, because you have the power to change that. Maybe next time we see somebody that, uh, you know, has 12 clips on YouTube of how wonderful they uh, killed somebody on a video game and they have highlight reels, you can tell them, you know, that is pathetic compared to what God could do in your life. Oh, do you know what he's done in my life? It's certainly not sit around and play with a little joystick all day. There are real enemies of God out there. Yeah. And we can triumph them. Do you know you have the power to put the devil under your foot? What if we actually Shabbat at least one day a week? What would, it, what would that week look like? How many people do you think there are in here? There's about 135 chairs, and I would guess we have maybe 15 of those empty. Okay? What if everyone, let's just round it off since I'm not good at math at all, Mom. We'll round it off to 100 people. Let's just say there were 100 people in here that one day a week dedicated the entire day to telling people how great God was. What would the world look like? Twelve little Jewish boys knew seven different ways to praise God and they changed the whole world. What could a hundred people do? As long as the church lies apathetic, as long as we cower to Islam, as long as we cower to every cult that there is that is more dedicated to their religion than you are to your Christ, friends, we have no excuse for the way the world is. God put Adam in a garden. And when he put him in the garden, he said, work the soil. He didn't just tell him to work the soil. He told him in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful, to multiply. He told him to subdue the earth. We have a job. The world is broken, and we are supposed to be bringing the healing message to it. And we are more interested in what is coming on television than we are loudly declaring the praises of God. That won't work, friend. It won't work. You know, on a mission trip, maybe it's because there were no TVs. Every day, every person, in some way, goes out and declares the glory of God. Amazing what happens Zeke, when people get rid of the idols that are in their lives. When you have no distractions in your life, when you have only the king. Of course, that's how we're supposed to live, isn't it? Friends, there's greatness in this room. There is. There's more untapped potential in this room than many churches ever get to see. We have to decide at some point that we want to go contribute, not just receive. We have to. Aside from Shabbat, you can move to Barak. Barak means to bless or kneel down. I love this one. I understand completely how a man blesses and kneels down to God. I do not at all understand how God blessed man and the creation and all of those things. I can't do the mental gymnastics for that. But in some way, it means that he gave himself for us. But when a man... Barak's God, when that happens, it has to do with the complete yielding of a will. Turn to 1 Chronicles. You'll be in the 28th chapter.
One of you's there. Where are the rest of you? There. We're not here to do an hour and get out, are we? No. Good. We've never done an hour. <laughs> David summoned all the officials of Israel to assemble at Jerusalem and the officers over the tribes, the commanders of the divisions in the service of the king, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men, and all the brave warriors. Suffice it to say, everybody was there. Everybody is there. How many of you like to be put on the spot in front of everybody? Yeah, nobody raised their hand for that one. David, do you like to be put on the spot? Look at that. David's sitting as far from me as he can get right now. He's trying to get through the sheetrock and on the other side of the wall. David got everybody present. You say, well, it's because he's the king. No, it's because of what he had to say. Look at verse 2. King David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my brothers. I mean, I would have sent this in an email, some kind of passive communication. King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the footstool of our God. And I made plans to build it. But God said to me, You are not to build my house for my name because you are a warrior and have shed blood. How many of you like to get seriously invested in something that you want to do? You begin to plan for it. You begin to finance it. You begin to look forward to it to the extent that you buy a spot to go build it. And then call every person that you know, high and low, and say, I was absolutely wrong. God said, I can't build it. And so we're going to go a new direction. We almost never see this. It's a whole lot easier to bend a knee than it is to bend a will. I mean, it's, it's so easy to say, oh, King Jesus, I love you. It is a whole lot harder when you come to the place where your will clashes with him to give him this kind of praise. This kind of praise in the Bible is called Barak. And it means, quite simply, that you bow and yield your will to his. Of course, you have to know what his will is, don't you? What does Romans 12 teach us about that? When we submit the members of our body as a spiritual act of service, of course, you could call that a praise, Matthew. Then we will know what his good, pleasing, perfect, and acceptable will is. Guys, if you're not changing your mind about things in your life from time to time, if your plans are not being thwarted by the will of God, then you are not really praising him in the fullest extent that you could praise him. The kind of honor that comes to him when you set aside your predetermined path and say, Lord, I'm sorry, you're my king. I planned that and I guess I didn't consult with you. So I'm not going to do it. What would you have me do? <clears throat> That's real praise. And you do it with a smile. Believing that he exists in that situation and he rewards those who are seeking him. You know what we do most often though? We go on and do what we plan to do and then ask for forgiveness afterwards. We apologize to God. We reject Him as King in our actions and then acknowledge Him with our mouth. Come on. What do you have swirling around in your heart right now that you're not sure is God but you've planned to do? I feel like we hit on the nerve there. 
How sure are you that the place you work, the place you live, the path that you've chosen, those things are God? I got a chance to share with the brother during worship. I, I felt like God just assured me a thousand percent. The brother is on the path God's called him to. In fact, he ought to put blinders on and ignore everything that's outside that path. That's a special thing. You know what kind of confidence it can give you to know that the direction you're headed is one that is inspired by God? Mm -hmm. You know what is true of the reverse? Yes. Insecurity. Second guessing every Constantly asking this one question. Is this God or is this the devil? Mm -hmm. Which ought to be the most basic question for any Christian to answer, ought it not? Mm -hmm. When we learn to give God Barak, it looks like King David. In the 29th chapter and 10th verse, David says this. David praised the Lord. Of course, the word is Barak. He knelt his will to the Lord's and probably did it physically. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, praise Barak to you, O Lord God of the fathers Israel, for everlasting to everlasting. The king of the nation set the example in bending his will to God. If he did that, what do you think the lowest member of the kingdom should do? Isn't that exactly what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane? Did he not bend his will to the fathers? Did he not say, nevertheless, your will be done? Father, Father, if you're willing that this cup should pass. You know, it's not such an easy thing to drink with that cup. You think it was easy for him? I know we have the scriptures that say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right. Do you think it was easy for him? He had to be strengthened from heaven three times just to be able to endure it. He was crushed. Isaiah said he was crushed. But he bowed his will to the fathers as an example. And if he did it, what should it look like for us? Barak, what if one day a week, what if just one, we stopped and said, Lord, I've made all kind of plans this week. I have all kinds of plans today, and I have not stopped to say, can I praise you by doing your plans rather than mine? What if we did something like that? Church of Christ would not like Zamar. Zamar is to make music accompanied by the voice, to celebrate, to sing songs of praise with instruments. In giving praise to the Father, we can... Either speak it or sing it. However, when expressing whether it's Yada, Toda, Shabak, Barak, in song, as accompanied by instruments, it's Zamar. Many times in the Bible when it says David praised God or Asaph praised God, the word is Zamar, and it specifically means with a stringed instrument. How could we make rules against them? One of the Hebrew words for praise, and by the way, it shows up in the Bible 45 times, is specifically the kind of praise that can only be accompanied by a musical instrument. 45 times it shows up in the Bible. In Psalm 92 it says, it's good to praise you, that's Yada, lift up your hands. The Lord and make music, Zamar, stringed instruments to your name, O Most High, to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night to the music of the ten-string lyre and the melody of a harp. He says it is as plainly as could be. In Psalm 9, 
The eleventh one, he says, sing praises, sing zamar, praises accompanied by string instruments to the Lord enthroned in Zion, proclaim among the nations what he has done. Is there anybody in here that doubts that music is a powerful medium? You walk into some people's room and you find out what gods they worship, they're all over their walls in their musicians. They're on their clothes, sometimes they're on the rings on their hands. God intended for stringed instruments to be a vehicle to move your spirit into His presence of adoration. Can you see that the devil has hijacked that? You know, you can put Republicans and Democrats in one room. You can put black folks, white folks in one room. You can put Asians and Hispanics in one room. You can have 50,000 people together in hot weather in Los Angeles, all in one stadium, and the Rolling Stones can sing a song, and in unison, they'll light lighters. They'll sway. How is that possible? They couldn't get along on any other day of the week. How is it possible that a secular musician can do that? Because music is anointed of God. Music, Zamar specifically, was meant for Him. It was the vehicle that would move you to praise Him and most connect your spirit with His. Is it any wonder the devil's hijacked it? Say, so, well, we don't listen to the words, Spence. We just, you know, it's all about the beat. Funny thing, though, if I mention any of the words, you can tell me what comes next, can't you? What if all of our music was set to Scripture? You would have the book of Psalms. Have you ever wondered how the average Jewish child at 10 years old had the Older Testament memorized? That's how, by song. God intended it to be that way. How are we using music, friends? When I got this revelation earlier this year, for the first time in my entire life, I stopped listening to 80s music. I'm just telling you, I'm your pastor. I hope that doesn't upset you. I had a 20-year statute of limitations on music. If it was 20 years old, it was cute, you know. If it was yesterday, it was sinful. I simply don't want my spirit to communicate like that. I want the last thing that I think about when I go to sleep to be whatever praise and worship song J.J. and Matt were singing. I want it to be the first thing I think of when I wake up. If this was your last week to live, would you go to, uh, would you go to a heavy metal concert or would you go to a praise and worship concert? Mm. I think it's funny that people are trying to live in both of those worlds. There's nothing more spiritual than music. Nothing. Period. It's also why so many churches have struggled to have decent praise and worship. It really is. The devil's worked against it. He's used their pride to do it. Generational gaps to do it. Music was meant to move people. It's meant to move people into praise. That's what Zamar is. Hallel is the sixth one. Hallel is the primary word. It's my favorite. Uh, I'm sorry it took me this long to get to it. I'm not sorry that I preached the things that I did. It's just that halal is important. So if you need to take a vibrant, slap yourself in the face. Hey, if you would like help with that, your brothers are here for that. I mean, ask the person on your left, slap me in the face. Uh, it's scriptural. David said, better that a righteous man strike me than that I stray from your presence. Of course, a lot of things are scriptural and not applied correctly. I mean, yeah. So... Hello, uh, H-A-L-A-L. In Hebrew, this is the primary root word for praise. It's where you get that international word, hallelujah. By the way, every nation I've been to, when I say hallelujah, even in a street square, and I usually do, uh, people all turn and look. Not just because you're crazy, 
but because it communicates something to them. They understand it. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're in Romania, whether you're in France, whether you're in India, whether you're in Africa. Hallelujah is one of those words that transcends language. You don't believe me? Travel some and try it. And Judah's nodding his head. He's only 15, but he's seen me do it in every country we've been in. And they understand it. God built that into our hearts. Hallelujah has become an international invitation to praise God. It means to be clear, to shine, to boast, to display. You're like this, young people, to rave. To rave. To celebrate. This is the hardest word for me to say. Clamoriously foolish. There's something about Hallel that says, come unhinged just a little bit. Be a kid in the presence of God. Shine brightly, unashamedly, unabashedly, without reserve. Get out there and show, demonstrate, shine your love to Him. What if we did that one day a week? Hmm? That word shows up 57 times in the Older Testament. 57 times. And is usually in conjunction with all of the others. Because when you hallel, it's going to come out in stringed instrument music. It's going to come out when you don't have a guitar. It's still going to come out, even if you have to do it a cappella. In fact, the last one, Tehillah, is to hallel to song. It's to get a little bit foolish, shining for the Lord in your songs. Have you ever, Matt and I showed up in Hungary, and while we were in Hungary, it was one o'clock in the morning, and the people were getting a little bit silly with their songs at the hotel that we had to stay at. Right? It was Hungarian karaoke night. <laughs> to a foreigner, you never heard anything quite so funny as that, so we videotaped it. But you know what? In some kind of way, they were praising and extolling and singing the virtues of the things that mattered to them most. Mostly alcohol and women. It wasn't hard to find out where their gods were. Can you not come unhinged just a little bit in the presence of God? Let your hair down a little bit, so to speak. Be like a child, or must you be more dignified than he is? Because he stepped down from there into our realm to change us. He rewarded the men who maybe didn't do everything right, but they stripped off all of their uh, ornaments of dignity and praised him openly before everybody. I'm tired of the Christian that is a closet Christian. I have the strangest thing to say about that. At least the homosexual community, at least they're dedicated enough to their cause to be homosexuals 24 hours a day. The Christian community is usually a Christian on Wednesday and Sunday. So as uh, a matter of effect, the homosexual community is having a bigger impact on our nation than the Christian community. I wish it wasn't true, but it is. And the Muslim community will absolutely riot if you don't let them pray five times in a day. The Christian community, we'd get more upset if the price at Starbucks went up. Somewhere in us, we better learn to revive these forms of praise. You do God no favors by being long on doctrine and short on all your actions. You don't. And I, I just, 
I'm not prideful, but if you'd like to have doctrinal kung fu session, we can do that all day long. I spent 20 years doing it, and I'm better at it than most of you. I don't think God is pleased with any of it, though. If it does not translate into a sincere, shining, bright, happy life for Jesus, then what good is it? I don't want the world to look at us and say, those people are miserable. I want them to look and go, that's the abundant life that only God could give. Amen. If we can't do that in practice with the aid of string instruments, the aid of our brothers around us, Amen. if we can't celebrate like our team scored a touchdown in here for Jesus, why would you have confidence you're going to do it in your workplace on Monday? I've seen more so-called Christians converted just because we went to lunch and I was unashamed, loudly, praising the Lord in front of them and it made them uncomfortable. And you know how subtle I can be. I, oh, it makes you uncomfortable talking about Jesus in public. I didn't realize you're a part-time Christian. They get mad, then they get convicted, then they get converted. And that's okay with me. I want my life to make a difference. Is there anybody out here that wants their life to make a difference? God gave all of you the instrument that's necessary to do it. Raise your hands before God. Not just in a worship service, but as an offering. Lord, whatever these hands do, I want them to do for you. What do you want today? Raise your mouth out in the public places. Make it loud. They will tell every lurid detail of their affairs, of their drunkenness, of all of their nastiness in Walmart in the checkout line. But we're ashamed to talk about Jesus in front of the cashier? Amen. Really? My favorite thing to do to teenagers that are doing that is to walk up to them and speak in tongues and say, Hey, you were praising your God. I just thought I'd praise mine in a while. Hey, where do you go to church? They always go to church somewhere. Could we not just be a little bit obnoxious for Jesus? Because halal is a little bit obnoxious for Jesus. We're going to close here. What would it look like if one day a week you extended your hands to the Lord? If one day a week you made it a point to confess your life before Him and praise Him for what He's done? If one day a week loudly you began to extol His attributes to everybody you saw and allowed yourself to feel peace while doing it? What if one day a week you kneeled physically, but more importantly, you examined the direction of your life and said, Lord, I want your direction, not mine. Something I'm doing has to be wrong. Show me what it is. What if one day a week we dedicated just to making music before the Lord? Is there anybody out there that when I say that, you, you think, but I'm not a musician? You sing in the shower? When nobody is around in traffic? Do you hum along to songs? Come on. You find the right music and eventually hips will start to sway a little bit. I mean, maybe just a little bit, but something's going to happen. Do it for the Lord. And if it's hard for you, no, it was hard for me too. I was born in stone underwear, but God broke it off. I got free. What if one day a week you got downright silly celebrating the goodness of the Lord? What if you did that silliness even in music? I'm just way past the day where a regular church service looks like a funeral service. We do a lot of things for the expedience of order. But I'm not sure we're really doing it to praise the Lord. The truth is the word praise has all seven of those attributes.
he does. When we stand to our feet. Anybody want to rejoice with the Lord? Yes. Anybody else want to rejoice with the Lord? Yes. You know the word rejoice means to leap and to spin? Brother, I just rejoice with the Lord. Not what it meant to a Hebrew person. Do you ever envision Miriam playing the tambourine and leading the women of Israel in worship right after their enemy was crushed in the Red Sea? Do you think she sat there and went... <laughs> Could you see her dancing, leaping, spinning, beating on that tambourine, singing out as if her life had just been saved? What makes you different? Has your life been saved? Come on, has your life been saved? If it hasn't, you need to stay longer after the service so we can deal with it. But those of you that your life has been saved, you better make some noise out in the public square for Jesus. This, this building is not a safety deposit box to protect your salvation. It's supposed to be a training and equipping center so that you can go out and do what God called you to do. Chief among those is praise Him before the people. Come on. Don't be ashamed of Him before men. You don't like how that scripture ends. Amen. Come on. Pray for us, Steve.